Welcome to the fourth instalment of Bible Society's She Too series, which is looking at some of the most difficult passages to be found in the Bible. The so-called texts of terror are stories about the rape and abuse of women. Most are not particularly well known, although they've been an area of study within feminist theology for decades. But the Me Too movement, which encourages women everywhere to speak out about their abuse, provides an opportunity to look at these stories afresh. Why are they in the Bible? What was their original purpose? And what are we to make of them thousands of years later? My guests in this series don't always take the same academic approach. They also come from a range of faith and non-faith backgrounds. Bible society is not aligned to any single denomination and doesn't necessarily endorse every position taken here. But this podcast is offered to help listeners engage with themes and parts of the Bible that are too important to ignore. I'm Rosie Dawson. I'm a journalist and theologian. And my guest for today's discussion is Dr Mary Evans, former Vice-Principal of London School of Theology and the author of a recent commentary on the Book of Judges. The story we're discussing is from the Book of Judges. It's that of the Levite's concubine. And I wondered to Mary whether it wasn't the most brutal and shocking story of them all. It is. It's absolutely appalling. You, you, you can't get worse than this particular story. It's rape, it's murder, it's abuse, it's depersonalization of women all of those are there i'm asking all my contributors to say a little bit about where they're coming from when they approach these texts you know what are the assumptions and beliefs that you're bringing to your reading of the bible so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah i come from a background which sees the bible as the word of god and sees it as having a message for us but also seeing it as needing to be interpreted needing to be looked at as it looks at itself. And sometimes I think we've got the hermeneutic, the the interpretation techniques wrong, and therefore needing to read again what the text is saying and asking why is it saying it, not just to treating it, it happened so it must have been the right thing, which the text itself doesn't do. Okay, so let's start this story. So we begin, we're told that um, there's a Levite, and he takes a concubine. Yeah. Concubine? Yes, that's an interesting one. There's no legal uh, status of concubine within the, within the law at all. Often concubines were secondary wives who lived at a distance. I mean, it's a polygamous thing. But in this instance, there's no indication that she was anything other than a wife. Her father's described as father-in-law using family terms, and he's a son-in-law... Uh, and it looks as if the writer from the beginning is describing her as a concubine because he, he wants to point out that she was from the very beginning treated as property, not as person. So he, he took a wife and uh, anyway, she appears to have got fed up and gone to her father's house, gone yeah. back home. We, we're not told why. No, it's a strange word that's used, sometimes translated as unfaithful, but it's, there's no hint of sexual infidelity. It's And another version uh, translates it as she became angry with him. She Her home was in Bethlehem, which was built up. We're told he lived not only in the countryside, but in the remote countryside. So it's possible she wanted to go home because she couldn't cope. It's possible that he'd been abusive, but she just couldn't cope with living with him in that situation for whatever reason. 
And he decides that he's going to go and get her from her father's house. So. Yeah, he does. Four months later, you don't know why he's <laughs> taken that length of time. And he, he, it's very interesting terminology because he says, I think I'll go and speak to her heart, with the implication that previously he hadn't. It's interesting that actually he doesn't speak to her at all. He doesn't know. <laughs> he goes, That's he right. goes and he goes and has a great time with his father-in-law. Yeah, and the writer picks up on that. He said he's going to go and speak to her heart. He doesn't speak to her at all, but the father keeps saying to him, "Oh, refresh your heart." It doesn't come across in the translation. Strengthen your heart. So it's all about his heart, not about her heart. But the the writer is drawing that out for anybody who has ears to hear. The father keeps him there. The father keeps inviting, do this, stay a bit longer. And, and it keeps talking about them enjoying themselves. Was it that they just enjoyed each other's company? Or was the father trying to keep it as long as possible before the inevitable of his daughter having to go back to this awful man? We don't know. But it was about four days that they got drunk and... And then eventually he's had enough and off they go. So the Levite uh, takes his wife, takes his servant, and um, off they go back to their home yeah. country. Um, and it's late in the day, and uh, they need to find a place to stay. Yeah. And the first place, the servant says, let's stop here. And uh, the Levite says, oh no, it's full of foreigners, we can't possibly stay yeah. here. Uh, so then they come to a Benjaminite area, which is not full of foreigners, and uh, they decide that they will hang about there and what happens yeah. they stop in the town square which is what you do if you're looking for accommodation uh, eventually not a benjamite but a an ephraimite which was the levites tribe comes up and says he'll okay he'll give them hospitality so they go to his house a gang of thugs come and they're shouting out that they want this Levite to come out so they can rape him. And the Ephraimite guy says, no, you can't do that. You know, take my daughter and his concubine and rape them instead. We don't know what happened to his daughter. There's no mention of her again. But the Levite, we're told, pushes his concubine out and says, basically, do what you think's right to her. They gang rape her. All night, abused her. She crawled back in a desperate situation to the place where she would have expected to find hospitality and hadn't, and died on the doorstep. It's a, it's a really heartrending phrase, isn't it? She comes back and her, she falls on the doorstep with her hands on the threshold as yeah. if she's trying reaching to get out, in. just trying to yeah. get in. Yeah. And then what happens? Then. He gets a bit mad because he didn't want to lose her. And because she was his property, he presents himself as the victim. What have you done to me, is the approach. He takes her body back to uh, his home, chops it up and sends it round to different parts of the country, calling the tribes together, saying the Benjamites did this. We need to deal with the Benjamites. You must all come to a meeting uh, to discuss how we deal with this terrible situation. But he's, it, it's interesting that they hear how he presents it to them and he doesn't say to them, I threw her out to these men. 
So we'll, we'll take a break from the story here um, and ask, what's the historical setting for this story? Yeah, it's the time between the exodus, the coming out of Egypt, and the forming, really, of the kingdom of Israel. And the tribes didn't all want to follow the same rules. They all wanted their own independence. Sounds a bit familiar. And there was nobody really taking charge. So it, it, was, a, it was a very unsettled time. And a time when following God seems to have disappeared from the picture. And how long after the events that are being described would this have been put together? Would this story have been written? Yeah, it's a good question. We don't know exactly, but the likelihood is the final production was probably well into the monarchy. So are we talking about hundreds of years later? Uh, we're probably talking a couple of hundred years after. We don't know. The likelihood is it was a couple of hundred years after it happened. One of the interesting things is that so far in this story, God is not mentioned. No. Is that significant? Yeah, I think it is. Even when God is mentioned later on, it's very much in a, a way that doesn't reflect the understanding of God presented in the, in the covenant text, for example. And the, the way in which you keep getting this refrain, uh, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's as if the writer is drawing your attention to that and saying, look, this, they were not asking what God wanted. That was irrelevant to them. That's clearly what you think the writer's saying. Yeah. yeah. So God does make a, an appearance in the next bit of the story because what happens after the Levite has said, it wasn't my fault, uh, guys, let's go and get revenge for this dreadful act against me. Um, off they go to slaughter the Benjaminites, which they do with um, great um, zeal. Um, and we're told that the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. Their towns were routed, they were set on fire. So what's the understanding of God we gain from that? Yes, it's difficult because it's trying to work out how far this is saying this is what God thought and how far he's saying this is what they thought God, God thought. thought. So that's a difficult one to, to, to do that. It's almost impossible to work that out. And it tends to depend on your own presuppositions before you're starting how you, how you understand that. So the men of Benjamin are killed. And yeah. now they've got a problem because Israel's lacking a tribe. Yeah. Yes, the whole of Benjamin, except for 600 men, are destroyed. And those 600 men have got no wives. It's interesting that they originally decided that the whole tribe would die, but they don't now seem to think they need to destroy the other 600 men. It's the consequences of stupid decisions are suddenly beginning to appear. And the solution they find is to go to a tribe at Jabesh Gilead, kill all the men and all the married women, and traffic the virgins um, to be wise for the Benjamites. But then they still find that they're 200 virgins short, so they go to a place called Shiloh. Yeah, it was Shiloh. It was probably a festival, so everybody was having a good time. In, in a way, you can't believe how awful this is. They, they said to the people, oh, well, what the Benjamin Knights can do is, while the, the girls are celebrating at this religious festival, go and steal them. So they took another 200 innocent girls, no choice in the matter, 
And then everybody went home happy because the men had all been sorted and that was going to go well. So the solution, you, you have a, a, in this story, you have a number of problems and the solution in every case is rape. Yeah, yeah pretty much that's it. And you cannot read this story without being shocked, without being horrified. And it seems to me that that's what the writer intended. And, and sometimes people interpret it as if it's, oh, well, the Bible supports rape. That in this instance, that is absolute nonsense. Do you think some people do interpret that, it that way? Yeah, I've heard people say, well, I can't bear the Bible because it tells these awful stories. And the implication is that God is allowing or, or supporting these awful things, whereas in fact the text is very clearly saying this is not how it why is it important that we read the story? It's important that we read the story because it's there. And in our Me Too society where we recognise abuse and we recognise that how much this is happening, to realise that it's recorded within scripture and it's clearly presented as awfulness, as not what was intended, as not what God intended, as not how the people should have lived. So the there is a justification in this text for the uh, support of the Me Too movement, really, that scripture tells the story, we should tell it. Well, Mary, thank you very much for doing that with me. <laughs>